Hello, my name is Allison. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm chapter 68, verses 5 through 6. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Pam. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Timothy 5, verses 3, 7, and 16. Take care of widows who are truly needy. Teach these things so that the families will be without fault. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should take care of them and not burden the church so that it can help other widows who are truly needy. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Cor. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in John 19, 25 through 27. Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene stood near the cross. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Lord, it's so good to be with your people. We pray that today your spirit, your Holy Spirit would be thick in this place, that we might draw closer to your heart, God, to know your ways. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Hey, so good to be with you all. Go ahead and have a seat. As Evan mentioned, my name's Amber Ayers. Um, it's it's really an honor to be able to preach this morning. Um, New Life Downtown is my home, our home. Um, as he mentioned, my husband and I have been here for, yeah, almost a decade. Um, we, have, we got married in New Life. Um, we have dedicated our babies up here on this stage. And so this is our family. This is our home. And it was an honor when Jason asked me um, to preach today. We're going to be coming into 1 Timothy 5, continuing our series in this book. Um, about First Timothy. So there was a recent study done on the effects of a fence around a playground. Teachers took their kids to a local playground in, in which there was no fence. And then the same group went to another playground um, and there was a specifically defined border designated by a fence. Two situations. In the first scenario the playground with no fence, the kids remained huddled around their teacher, fearful of leaving out of her sight. But in the second scenario, the kids felt free to move around within the given boundaries. And the conclusion of the study was that within the given limitations, kids felt safe to explore the playground. But without the fence, the kids couldn't see a limit and were more reluctant to leave their caregiver, not knowing what was beyond in the unknown. 
And so the fence served as a visible reminder that the, to the kids that they were safe from threats that were perhaps beyond where they couldn't see. And as long as they remain in that secure environment, they could separate from the caregiver and explore while still feeling safe within the limits of the fence. And so here we see that boundaries are essential for a safe and healthy community. Clear limits create order and safety rather than chaos and fear. And so when we draw appropriate lines, this leads to flourishing. And this is the specific issue that Paul is addressing in our passage today in 1 Timothy 5. You'll remember that this book is written from Paul, who was the church planter and the founding pastor, to a young Timothy. Timothy is now charged with leading the fledgling church in the city of Ephesus. And there are some real threats that we've encountered that the church encountered inside and outside. Threats like false teachers, immature believers, incompetent leaders, uncertain organization, and disorderly relationships. And so it's up to Timothy to lead this church in the midst of some swirling chaos inside and outside. And Paul's instructions to Timothy serve as a guide in how to lead and how to form and how to create order in this church. So Paul goes to great lengths to set some boundaries, to define some limits so that order, not chaos, reigned in the church in Ephesus. Because Paul knows that where there is disorder, people suffer. And these internal and external threats could take down the church. And so we see boundaries matter. Boundaries matter. And they matter because in order to create an environment where communities thrive, where lines need to be drawn and fences need to be placed. Boundaries need to be set. Otherwise, chaos ensues. And all you have to do is show up at my house around 8 p.m., uh, because 8 p.m. is bedtime, lights out. I have a three-year-old, I have a five-year-old, and um, if we as parents didn't set the boundaries, turn the lights out, uh, lay your head on the pillow, go to sleep, we would have kids jumping on the bed at midnight, right? Everyone knows this is true. We got two little monkeys jumping on the bed, one fell off and bumped her head, mama called the doctor, and the doctor said... No, the doctor said, set some boundaries. The doctor said, draw some lines. The doctor said, turn out the lights. Clear limits need to be set. Same goes for dinner time, right? Um, tacos are on the menu tonight. So I just put tacos on your plate. And I know you want 10 pieces of leftover Halloween candy, but guess what? Tacos are on the menu, okay? <laughs> um, we know that tacos are, uh, they produce this amazing food coma, right? And we all know what Halloween candy produces. Monkeys jumping on the bed. So there we are, setting some boundaries. Families thrive when there are clear limits, where there are boundaries. And healthy relationships are built on appropriate yeses and nos. We even see the importance of this in governance. Just last week, we participated in the midterm elections. 
because we know that the people who lead our communities will either create order or chaos in the decisions that they make. And so we cast our vote in a democratic society and we elect officials and vote for or against propositions that either create chaos or order. They create boundaries in our communities. So boundaries matter, otherwise chaos reigns. Now, if all of this talk about boundaries and order sounds a bit yawn-worthy and uptight, let's look a bit deeper into our text. Because where there is disorder, people suffer. Specifically, the vulnerable suffer the most. Where there is disorder, the vulnerable suffer the most. So the reason that Paul spills a lot of ink over this issue is not because he's a control freak. Rather, it's because he knows that order in the family of God will protect the most vulnerable, specifically widows. That is our topic of focus today. In biblical times, the primary purpose of women in marriage was to produce children, to carry on the family line. And so a childless widow was doubly vulnerable with no husband to provide and protect her, and no children to care for her in old age. And so, laws and special provisions were put into place so that the widows were not abused or neglected. And so the bulk of chapter five, our text for today, contains instructions on caring for widows and setting boundaries so that they are protected and the church isn't taken advantage of. Here we find the longest discussion about widows in the New Testament. And there are meticulous guidelines in managing and caring for different widows in different circumstances. And Paul gets so deep in the particularities that it can be assumed that there were previous problems in deciding who qualifies for receiving care in the church in Ephesus. So Paul begins by implying that some widows should be treated differently from others. We see this in verse three. Take care of widows who are truly needy. And then he categorizes widows into three different types. The first being the truly needy. These are women whose age likely prevents remarriage, who lack the financial support of an extended family, and who exemplify strong faith. The second category are widows with children, okay? These would be those who should expect financial support from their children and not require support from the church. And then that third category are young widows who can likely remarry. Young enough can expect to remarry and then expect support from their, house, their spouse. So Paul refers to these three types of widows and then refers to a list, almost like a roster in verse nine. He says, put a widow on the list who is older than 60 years old and who was faithful to her husband. So we've got some very clear guidelines, meticulous guidelines on how Timothy is to care for and treat widows in the church. Now, I don't know about you, but immediately I wanna raise my hand and say, "Uh, excuse me, but what if she was 59 and had no children, right? What are we supposed to do with that situation? Was Timothy to follow every instruction exactly to a T? Or did he ever experience a blurring of those lines? These situations 
are a little sticky. The reality is that we know boundaries lead to flourishing communities and protect the most vulnerable, but where do we place the boundaries? Where do we draw the lines? Where should the fences be? In Paul and Timothy's day, the most vulnerable were widows and orphans. And today we know that the most vulnerable are people on the margins. People like single people, either by choice or by circumstance. Single parents, by choice or by circumstance. Or the elderly, or orphans, or families in crisis. Or those experiencing mental illness or physical disability. And even as I put those categories out there, perhaps you find yourself in a vulnerable place right now. Perhaps you find yourself on the margins. Or you've experienced a season of vulnerability and marginalization. And if that's the case, I am so grateful that you are here with us in the family. And I want you to keep listening because there is more to say about your story than just that, vulnerable and marginalized. There is much more to say about your story. Here's an example that we encounter every single day. You don't have to drive far in our beautiful city to see beautiful people made in the image of God standing on the street corner and asking for money. They are vulnerable and they've hit hard times. And as Christ followers, we are called to care for them. We're called to care for these people. And their situations are complex and multi-layered, often involving trauma or addiction or homelessness. But the statistic is pretty stark. Research from Springs Rescue Mission shows that it currently costs the city $65,000 per person per year if someone is unwilling to receive help and resources from local services rather than from the street corner. So these kinds of situations require discernment. How do we understand and apply God's word in setting boundaries. I have a $5 bill in my car. Should I hand it out or not? Should I make a different decision? How do our daily, moment by moment, street corner to street corner decisions actually care for the vulnerable and create these boundaries that lead to flourishing, creating order rather than chaos? Discernment is required. Discernment is required in caring for the vulnerable. I love how one author defined discernment as this. It's the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. It's like wiping the steam from a mirror so we can clear away that which is opaque and see with God-given clarity. And then we make decisions based off of that God-given clarity. There's a verse in Hebrews 5, 14, that says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so discernment is developed as we mature and practice this skill. Discernment is a practice. We practice it over and over again. Just like we learn how to walk 
and talk and eat solid food. We have to learn the skill of discernment. And so I found a few questions that might help us as we practice discernment, especially in caring for the vulnerable today. And these questions, this can be done individually, but we also want to practice discernment communally with others in the company of other people because communal discernment counters self-deception. I only see it my way. And communal discernment can counter that self-deception and it heightens the possibility that God's heart on the issue can be known. And so here's just a series of questions that I perhaps invite you to consider the next time that you are asking, what do I do in this situation? It's a little tricky. I'm not sure. The mirror is still a little foggy and I can't see clearly. These questions prompt us in discerning how to care for the vulnerable. The first question, is it faithful to scripture and to the larger Christian tradition? Is it faithful to scripture, our holy text, and to the larger Christian tradition? The second question, does it manifest the fruit of the spirit within the individual and the community, the fruit of the spirit, that love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? Does it manifest those things that we find in Galatians 5 in ourselves and in the community? Next, is it characterized by a genuine sense of peace? Not that fabricated kind of peace. We all know that, that feeling of the fabrication, that manufactured peace, but that genuine sense of peace that comes from the Spirit. The next one, does it promote reconciliation rather than divisiveness? Does it promote reconciliation in our relationships, in our community, amongst other people? Or does it promote divisiveness and discord in our relationships? The fifth question, does it enhance rather than diminish life? We are going after that which brings life, that which gives life. And so as we make decisions and discern are we pursuing that which gives life and that which enhances life rather than diminishes it? And then last, overall, has the discernment process been engaged in with integrity? This is just a, a handful of questions that we can um, bring to the process of discernment when trying to figure out how to create order so that communities flourish and the vulnerable are protected we can ask these questions and practice the skill of discernment. Practice trying it on and seeking God's heart in every situation. I think questions like this honor the image of God in every person. They honor the image of God in every situation where we are discerning how best to care for the vulnerable. Now, the process of discernment and the practice of caring for the vulnerable can't just be one direction. It can't just be only giving. Can't be one direction, and I'm not talking about the boy band. Some of you got that. Caring for the vulnerable is bi-directional. Bi-directional. Here's what I mean by that, okay? There are ways that we organize our life together and allocate our budget and create an environment here in Palmer High School and in the many places that New Life Downtown exists beyond Sundays. There are ways that we do this that communicate to everyone, you are welcome here 
you have a place at the table. But it can't stop there. We must also communicate, especially to those who receive help. You have something to give. Your role is not just receiver, but you also have something to give to contribute to our community. And I think this honors the creativity and identity and purpose in every person. In our passage today, Paul puts it in these positive terms when he says, widows are to do good works, practice hospitality, and help during difficult times. In verse 10, she should have a reputation for doing good, raising children, providing hospitality to strangers, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in distress, and dedicating herself to every kind of good thing. And then in later verses, Paul puts it in negative terms. The widows are to avoid laziness, avoid gossip, and avoid meddling. Verses 13 and 14. Also, they learn to be lazy by going from house to house. They are not only lazy, but they also become gossips and busybodies, talking about things they shouldn't. So, I want younger widows to marry, have children, and manage their homes. The expectation is that the vulnerable also have gifts to give and should exercise those gifts for the good of the community and not squander them, not squander away those gifts. And so when the single guy in our midst recognizes that singleness comes with a set of challenges that require connection with other people, he can reach out for help. And then the people around him can call out the gifts that he can meaningfully contribute to the health of the community. And when the elderly aren't isolated from younger generations, but rather they're invited to share from their wealth of life experience, their many laps around the block, then they give back and offer their gifts for the betterment, for the good of our community. Scripture is full of exhortations to care for the most vulnerable. But here we see the full circle effect of how those who receive care are urged to turn around and then give back to their community. Because we will be deficient. We in our community will be deficient without the gifts of everyone being offered for the flourishing, for the good. At Dream Center's Mary's Home, this bi-directional care is called High Support, High Challenge. And this ministry was built upon the belief that single moms and their children who are exiting homelessness, when they are placed in a loving environment of high support and high challenge, they can find healing and wholeness and meaningfully contribute to their community. And I get a front row seat to some of these transformational stories because my husband, Matthew, he leads and he pastors in this ministry. And this past week, I had the opportunity to sit down with one of the residents. Her name is Diana. And she moved into Mary's home nine months pregnant, literally on the due date that her baby girl was to be born. She showed up on the doorstep with a bag of clothes, and that was it. Nothing else. She was seeking stability away from the drug culture that she had got caught up in. She was vulnerable and full of shame for the decisions that she had made and the felonies on her record. 
But at Mary's home in the high support, high challenge environment, she was given time and space to renew her identity, to grow in confidence, and to raise her daughter in a healthy community. And just a few weeks ago, her daughter celebrated her fourth birthday. So four years later, Diana is contributing to the community, get this, as an employee, an employee of Dream Centers because she's the Mary's Home Advocate. She's a cheerleader for the many other women who show up on the doorstep of Mary's Home, vulnerable and alone. And get this, she's pursuing certification in recovery coaching, potentially even pursuing a degree in psychology because she knows where she has experienced transformation, where she has been given that high support, high challenge, she wants to offer that back so that other women can experience the exact same thing. High support, high challenge, where people are expected to both give and receive. So as the worship team comes up, we heard in the gospel reading today, there's this dramatic scene of Jesus on the cross And he speaks to the woman in front of him, his mother, Mary. Her husband, Joseph, has not been around for a long time. We don't hear of him at the um, scene of the cross. And now her son is dying. So she's both a widow and a mourning mother, alone and vulnerable. And her world is spiraling into chaos. So Jesus creates order out of chaos by placing Mary in John's care, the beloved disciple's care. He says, here is your family. John's home becomes Mary's home. And Jesus did what every one of us can do, what any one of us can do. He called John to care for the widow standing next to him, the vulnerable and marginalized in his midst. Jesus did what any human can do, what every human can do when we encounter the vulnerable and the marginalized. And then Jesus did what no human can do, what only God can do. In the grandest act of love on the cross, Jesus showed us what ultimate love looks like. Without boundaries, without drawing lines, so that anyone and everyone can receive the gift of grace. He saved us and he redeemed us, humans who are vulnerable and alone, because friends, we are all vulnerable and alone, lost. And Jesus said, welcome, this is your family. He looked at us and he said, when your world is spiraling into chaos, here is your family. Here are your people. Welcome into the family of God. So we come to the family table to celebrate this gift of grace in the grandest act of love. Amen.